I want to invite you this morning to uh, open your Bibles to Second Kings 2. And I want to introduce you this morning to uh, the most strange and wonderful man I have ever encountered in the Bible. His name is Elisha. I have hesitated teaching on this man for years. I don't think I've ever taught a series on the life of Elisha because I was afraid of him. There are so many odd things that Elisha did that I didn't understand. And uh, that still may be a question in your minds. But uh, as I've come to look more closely at this man's life, I have come to see that, as Paul says, these things happened. That is, the things that men and women did in the Old Testament, uh, in the Old Testament, not only happened, but they happened for our encouragement and our admonition. They really lived. These were real, honest-to-goodness, authentic, historical characters. But what they did and said has an impact upon us today. Now I want to read one paragraph from the story of Elisha, and it must be one of the oddest texts in the Old Testament. To give you some example of why I feared this man, it's in verse 23 of chapter 2 of Second Kings. Elijah went up from there, that there is uh, Jericho. Elijah, oh, pardon me, Elisha went up from there to Bethel. And as he was going up by the way, some young lads came out from the city, and they mocked him, and they said to him, Go up, you bald head. You can see why I have great empathy with this man, <laughs> having been caught at an early stage in a hair raid. <laughs> go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. When he looked behind him and saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then two female bears came out of the woods and tore up 42 lads of their number. And he went from there to Mount Carmel and... From there, he returned to Samaria, and I say, what a terrible man, and what a terrible God. Some little tots come tumbling out of the city of Carmel and, and or Bethel, and they tweak this uh, man because he has a bald pate, and he calls down the judgment of God on them, and bears come out of the woods and kill these little children, and I say, what a... What an awful person. Well, don't believe it for a minute. There's far more going on here than meets the eye. And we'll return to this passage in a few moments. But to begin the story of Elisha, I'd like to have you go back to 1 Kings and pick up the story of his call. It's 1 Kings 19. Now, if you remember, last year we did a short study on Elijah, Elisha's uh, mentor, and now we want to turn to look at Elisha, who was Elijah's young protege. Elijah, as you may recall from our studies last year, was on his way from, uh, from Mount Horeb, which is in the southern part of the Sinai Peninsula. He'd gone there because he was in a deep, deep depression. There was a great victory on Mount Carmel, which he thought would extend throughout Israel, But when he got back to Samaria, he discovered that Jezebel, the wicked young queen of Ahab's who had brought her Baal uh, worship 
with her from Phoenicia, had put out a contract on his life. And so uh, he fled, and he became deeply, deeply depressed. Some of his melancholy was the result of just plain weariness. He'd been up for a long time. He'd been over-adrenalized, overstressed, and so the Lord put him to sleep for a while, fed him a couple of square meals. Angels touched him. And then he went down to Mount Sinai, or Mount Horeb, as it's sometimes called. Horeb just means desolation. It's more description than a place name. Where God normally revealed himself. That's where he had revealed himself to Moses. And he, he told Elijah what he was about. He didn't appear in the storm and the earthquake and the wind. He appeared in a, in a still, small voice. In other words, he, what he's saying to Elijah is we must keep our expectations realistic. Sometimes God acts with a fireball, as he did on Mount Carmel. But more, more normally, he works in quiet ways. Spirit blows where it, will, where it will. It's like the wind that presses in on us. It's like the air all around us. We're not always aware of it, but it's there. He's at work in quiet ways to will and, do, and to do of his good pleasure. It's a very important lesson to learn because we seem to think that God always works in observable ways, but he doesn't can't always see what he's about. And out of that experience of revelation, God gave Elijah three tasks. Verse 15, the Lord said to him, go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. Damascus was then as it is now the capital of Syria. When you have arrived, you shall anoint Haziel king over Syria, and Jehu son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel, and Elisha the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Mahola, you shall anoint as a, as a prophet in your, in your place. So he's given three assignments to anoint Haziel as king of uh, Syria. Haziel uh, is noted on the monuments as the son of nobody. He was not a part of the royal dynasty. He came out of nowhere. He was a special appointment of God that became the scourge on Israel's back. It was the means, he was the means of discipline that God used eventually to eradicate Baal worship from Israel. Then he was to appoint Jehu king over the northern kingdom of Israel in Ahab's place, and that actually took place. Ahab was the one who was responsible for the death, pardon me, Jehu was the one that was responsible for the death of uh, the wicked Jezebel. And then he said, you shall appoint Elisha. As your successor. Now, he actually only uh, accomplished the third task. It was Elisha who did the other two works that uh, uh, God commissioned Elijah to do, but the work was done because they were done through Elisha, which will have some significance later in our study of, of Elisha. And what follows in verse 19 is the story of the call of Elisha. So he that is, Elijah, departed from there, Mount Horeb, and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve pairs of oxen before him, and he with the twelfth. And Elijah passed over to him and threw his mantle on him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please, let, us, let me kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? So he returned from following him, and he took the pair of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the implements of the oxen, that is, the yoke and uh, the leash, all the leather apparel, uh, equipment, and gave it to the people, and, and they ate 
Then he arose and followed Elijah and, and ministered to him. Abel Mahol is way up in the northern part of the land of Israel. As you know, the, the land was measured back then from Dan to Beersheba. Dan was the northernmost city of any size. Beersheba was the largest city to the south. This little city of Abel Mahol is way up in what today is called Metula in Israel. Metula means finger in Hebrew. It's that little finger of land that stretches up along the Jordan River, the most northernmost part of, of the state of Israel today. So... Uh, Elijah had a long walk all the way from Mount Horeb, the south end of Mount Sinai, clear to the northern end of the land of uh, Palestine. He had to travel up the rich, fertile valley of the Jordan to get there. When he arrived at uh, Bel Mahola, he found himself on the farm of Shaphat. Shaphat was a very, very wealthy man. There are hints of that here in the, in the narrative. His field stretched as far as the eye could see from Abel Mahola. Abel Mahola, as a matter of fact, means field of dancing, which is indicative of the joy that accompanied the lavish harvests of that, of that region. Shaphat had this enormous farm there. And the drought had been broken, and his son Elisha, like all dutiful Israelis, was out doing the dirty work with the rest of the hands. And when, when I talk about dirty work, I mean it because he was in the 12th yoke of oxen eating the dust of the 11 oxen, that, 11 yokes of oxen that were plowing in front of him. You talk about gang plows. This, there, were, there were 12 oxen that were pulling uh, plowshares. And Elijah was at the end plowing. Elijah came up behind him, took the heavy camel's hair coat that he wore and placed it on Elisha's shoulders, and then passed by. Not a word was spoken, but Elisha knew exactly what what Elijah had done because a mantle in that culture signified everything that that a teacher stood for. And he realized that, uh, that the ministry that had been given to Elijah was being passed on to him. Now, we don't know what contact they'd had before, but reading in the, between the lines, we, we have to assume that they knew each other, and perhaps Elisha was one of the sons of the prophets. Here's a hint now of the future of this, uh, this young man. He left his oxen standing in the field, and he went to Elisha and ran after him. Actually, the text says, and, and he said, let me go tell my mother and father goodbye. As Matthew Henry uh, puts it in his commentary, he didn't want to ask leave. He wanted to take leave. He'd already taken He'd already made up his mind that he was going to follow uh, Elijah, but he wanted to say goodbye. Elijah said to him something that sounds very harsh in our ears. He he says, uh, go back. Go back again. For what have I done to you? But uh, there there was no harm intended. What, What Elijah was asking him to do was to think through the implications of this call. This was not an easy thing that he was being called to do. He had to count the cost. He had to be willing to set aside his wealth and his position and the possibility of inheriting the farm, the probability of inheriting the farm at some point and, and follow after Elijah. But he made that hard, course, uh, hard choice and chopped up the uh, plowshare and broke the yoke and built a fire and barbecued the oxen. And in a strange mix of metaphors, he burned his bridges and ate them. Invited his friends and neighbors to uh, to a great feast, and like Matthew, I thought of Matthew when I read this. Who, when he began to follow the Lord, uh, ate one last time with all of his uh, rasty friends, and Elijah, Elisha began to to follow Elijah. 
And Elijah began to invest in this young man, and Elisha followed him. And all through his life, he didn't let a single word drop to the ground. He loved this old man and cherished every word that he had to say. Here was an older, wiser head that he could follow. Some of you may have seen on the news last night or heard on the news last night Martin Fitz, Fitzwater's comment about Clinton's need for people in his cabinet who were overweight and bald. And it, of course, what he meant was uh, some weightier figures, some more mature figures. So uh, they chose David Gergen, as you know. I don't know how he's going to feel about that, but to be his uh, counselor. And that's what Elisha felt. Here's an older man, an old grizzly that I can relate to who will teach me the things that I need to know. And he, he began to follow uh, Elijah, laid his, laid his life on the line. And you know, as I read this this past week, it occurred to me that a few days before, Elijah was ready to die. In fact, he told the Lord he wanted, he wanted the Lord to take his life from him. He was so depressed and so discouraged. He had such high hopes for his ministry. And he, in his own mind, had proven to be such a failure. Now he was getting old and he felt like he had nothing more to invest. and He couldn't give anymore and he was tired and he was weary. And the whole time he was asking God to kill him. God was preparing Elisha. And the most enduring, significant thing that Elijah did was to invest his life in Elisha because Elisha's ministry continued for 50 years. He had a tremendous impact on his times. Here's this older man with all the wisdom that he's accumulated through the years and all of his understanding of God beginning to impart this truth to this this fine young man, what a, what a wonderful way to spend your, your waning years rather than retire and hide someplace and begin to live for yourself. People that do that just wither and die. What a wonderful privilege it is to be on tap. Older people don't need to be on top, as Leiacocca says, but they ought to be on tap, available, imparting the wisdom that God has imparted uh, to them. So um, Elijah and Elisha continued on as, uh, as mentor and protege and all earthly good things come to an end and the Lord announced to Elijah that it was time for him to come home. If you turn with me to back to 2 Kings 2 now, we'll pick up the story at that point. God was sending his chariot to bring his, his prophet home and as Elijah and Elisha made their way up the uh, plain, on the east side of the, of the uh, Jordan River. Toward the appointed spot, Elisha made a strange request of Elijah. We talked about this last summer. I don't want to go back into this, uh, this uh, text again, except to remind you that Elisha's request was that he might have a double portion of Elijah's spirit. Not that he might be twice more powerful, twice more in- influential, or twice the man that Elijah was. That's not the point. The double portion was the right of primogenitors, the right of the firstborn, to all the rights and privileges of the family. Elisha wanted to be Elijah's spiritual heir. He wanted the ministry that Elijah had had. That touches me deeply. He didn't want, he didn't want wealth. He wasn't looking for power. He didn't want easy retirement. What he wanted was a life that mattered, that counted. And that's why he asked for this double portion. And do you remember the story Elijah said to him, you know, this cryptic thing that we tried to sort our way through last, last summer? He said, uh, if you see me when I go, you'll have it. Sounds like magic. 
And uh, when the chariot swung low to pick up Elijah and carry him home, Elisha cried out, My father, the chariots of God and his host. He saw what mortal men and women don't normally see. He had a peek into the unseen world, which was what Elijah was trying to teach Elisha all along. He wanted Elijah, Elisha to know that there is a, there is a world of, of invisible reality all around us where there is a spiritual warfare being waged, and it's out of that unseen, invisible realm that God acts. Basically, what Elijah was trying to teach Elisha was to walk by faith. That's the only thing we can impart to anybody else that has any value. That's why we teach them Scripture. That's why we disciple people. That's why we spend time with them. That's why we impart truth to them so they can learn to see beyond the seen, to see what normally cannot be seen. As the writer of Hebrews puts it, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. In other words, it makes real the unseen world. And that's what really matters in life and in ministry is realizing that God is at work in that realm, stepping out of that realm into our realm to act. And that was the great lesson that Elisha learned as a result of his, uh, of his contact with Elijah. Remember, the writer of Hebrews says, follow those that taught you and imitate their faith, not their methods, not their techniques, not their style, imitate their faith. That's the only thing we should imitate about anyone else. No power in their personality, no power in their, in their education or their intellect. The power is in, is in God. And the only way any of us can tap into that power is, is through faith. That's what Elisha learned, see, to walk by faith, to imitate Elijah's faith. Now, in chapter 2, there are three indications that he had learned that lesson that he, and that he had learned it well. There's the story of, uh, of Elisha crossing the Jordan River. And again, I'm not going to elaborate on this because we studied it last summer. I just want to remind you. He comes to the river. You remember the first time they crossed the Jordan River, Elijah struck the water with his cape, with his mantle, and the waters parted, and they walked through on dry ground. Elisha comes back. He's on the east side of the Jordan River. The sons of the prophets, 50 of them, are on the west side of the river, and they're watching Elisha. Elisha now is wearing Elijah's mantle. And they come to the river, and Elijah, Elisha takes off the mantle. He rolls it up, and he strikes the river, and nothing happens. So he raises that question, the best question of all, where is the God of Elijah? And in asking the question, he answers it. It's in me. There's no, pa- no power in, in Elijah. There's no power in the mantle. There's no power in the office. The office represented the off. Uh, pardon me. The mantle represented the office that Elijah, uh, that Elisha had entered into. There's no power in that office. The power is in God. So, in asking the question, "Where is the God of Israel?" He realized where he had gone awry. The God of, uh, the God of Elijah, rather, the God of Elijah was was resonant in him. So, the second time he struck the. The river, he wasn't uh, counting on the mantle to do the job. He was counting on God. The river separated. Elijah walked through, Elisha walked through on dry ground. And, and the sons of the prophets said, you remember? The spirit and the power of Elijah are resting upon Elisha. And so his authority was recognized. And that was necessary. It was necessary for him to be acknowledged by his peers. But there were still the people of the land. <clears throat> And the next two stories, the next two incidents have to do with the acknowledgement of the people, or in one case, a failure to acknowledge the authority of God's prophet. 
Now, uh, the first incident took place in Jericho, verse 19. Then the men of the city, that is the citizens of Jericho, said to Elisha, Behold now, the situation of this city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful, literally childless is the idiom that's used, and that's very significant, as we'll see in a moment. And he said, bring me a new jar and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. And he went out to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, thus says the Lord, I have purified, literally healed, I have healed these waters. There shall not be from their death or childlessness any longer. So the waters have been purified to this day, according to the water, according to the word of Elisha, which he spoke. So Elisha makes his way back across the Jordan River to the west side, back into the land of Israel. And he comes to the city of Jericho and the citizens of Jericho come to him and they say, you you know that our city is well situated. It was then. It still is today. Jericho is a beautiful place. It's an oasis in the middle of a sterile desert. Beautiful palm trees, pomegranates, fig trees there. The reason that oasis is there is because there's a huge spring. It emits copious supplies of quantities of water. It's called today Ainus Sultan, named during the Turkish period, Spring of of the Sultan. That was the spring that that provided uh, water for the city, the city water supply. It was the means by which they irrigated their fields, and that's why that was such a fruitful place. But the spring spring had been polluted, and the fields had become infertile, childless is the idiom that's used. Now, that's not a, not a throwaway line. That's not an unimportant idiom. It's very important. It's there by design because it points up again the conflict that both Elijah and Elisha had with the powers of this age. Let me explain what I mean. The, the conflict all the way through Elijah and Elisha's ministry was with Baal, the, the Tyrian god that uh, Jezebel had brought into Israel, and Baalism, which had become the state religion of that time, and the living god of Israel. Practically everything they did is related to the, to the conflict between those two. And as we learn from 1 Corinthians, an idol is not just a piece of heavy metal. Behind every idol, there's a demon. That's what Paul says. They were worshiping devils. It was the devils that they thought brought fertility to the land. So they would pray to their idols, pray to Baal to bring rain. And interestingly enough, Baal and one of the stele that that they've unearthed in what today is is, uh, Syria uh, shows Baal astride the subterranean waters of the earth. He was the lord of the springs and the sources of water. In, in Canaan. So what you see, you know, he's pitting these two forces one against the other. There is the force of darkness, and then there is the force of light, the Lord God of Israel. So the question uh, in the minds of people in Jericho is, do we go to Baal for help with our spring, or do we go to the prophet of God? And, and fortunately, they went to Elisha. And what Elisha did was to, uh, he, he, he first took a symbolic action, and then he explained what was going on. He said, go get a Go get a jug. Just about like that. This, this is actually a jug from about 200 years before uh, Elisha's time. Just a little milk jug. Very crude. You can see the fingerprints around the edge. This thing is about 
about 3,000 years old, if you can believe that. And uh, the cruise, or, or bowl, as the NIV puts it, or jar, as the NASB has it. It's just, just a little jug like this. Don't worry, I'm not going to drop it. In. It's got these little ears on it, cute little thing, but it's real ugly. <clears throat> and very fragile, really. Elisha says, fill it up with salt, which they did. And he goes uh, to the spring, which was just a few yards northeast of the uh, city of Jericho, still there today. And he pours salt out of the jar. And the waters are healed. They become sweet again, and they're able to uh, irrigate their, their fields. And we say, that's magic. That's all that is. That's magic. No, there, there are three elements here that you have to look at carefully. One was the symbol, which was the new jar and the salt. Those are symbols. The substance or the, sh- or the, the reality of which the symbols uh, sh- uh, were shadows was the word of the prophet. Now, I want you to notice what the, what the prophet actually said. When he came to the spring, he poured the salt in the spring, and he turned to the people and he said, This is what the Lord says. I have healed these waters. Not Baal. Not the salt. I have done it. You see? So it wasn't, it wasn't the, the magic of the salt. It wasn't the salt at all. It was the power of God operative through the word of the prophet. The prophet spoke and the word worked and the spring was purified and healed and made sweet again. Now, you, I ask, what, what, what do the symbols mean? Well, the new jar, I believe, was Elisha. He was a newcomer, a neophyte, a novice. He'd never been used. This was the first opportunity he had to minister. Salt represents the word of God. In Colossians 4, Paul says, let your speech be seasoned with salt. He's not talking about being mannerly and and gracious to people, although that should be true of us. But he's really talking about the necessity of interspersing our conversation with truth. Salt was medicinal back then. Salt was also used as an antiseptic. They rubbed down their babies with it when they were first born. Still do in Arab lands. They, they take salt and rub it all over their, their children's purpose that it had for healing, and cleansing, setting things right. It's a wonderful picture of what the Word does. It comes into our life and it heals those horrible memories that we have. It purges us from sin and it makes life sweet again. And it makes us fruitful. The powers of this age can't do that. See, the counselors, the psychiatrists, the psychologists that don't know God, they can't make your life sweet like that. They can't purify you. They don't know how to do it. But the simplest believer who lets his speech be seasoned with salt can have that effect on, on someone else. I thought of something Paul said. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. He said, the treasure in context is the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. What Paul is saying is that if you want to see what God is like, if you want to see his glory, just look at Jesus. 
And that message of Jesus is the message that God has given to us. We have this treasure, the message of the glory of God in the face of Christ in earthen vessels. That the power of God may be of, uh, that, the, that the adequacy might be of God and, and not of us. Isaiah said, the Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned that I might know how to speak a, season, speak a word in season to him or her that's weary. He wakens me morning by morning. He wakens me to open my ear as a learner. It uses the word for a disciple there. As you get up morning by morning and you feed your own soul on the word of God, God begins to impart truth to you. Then you can turn around and impart that truth to others and impart that sweetness that the word of God can can provide. Carolyn and I were walking this last week and I was really bothered about something, something that was coming up, and I, I just didn't know how to work it out. And, and she had been reading Psalm 131. She wasn't aware of my feelings at all. I hadn't talked about it. And she shared a verse from Psalm 131 where, where the psalmist said, I was like a weaned child on, on his father's, uh, on his mother's uh, breast, not clamoring, not crying, not calling for anything, not wanting anything, just content to be near its mother. He says, I don't bother my mind about great things. I just hope in the Lord. That's, that's a short form of it, but that's what the psalmist says. And I realized what I'd been doing. I'd been bothering myself with great things. I was trying to figure things out instead of just trusting God's heart. And the result was just a, a great sense of, of rest and sweetness entered into my soul. That's what the Word does. So get to know the Word. So your speech will be salty wherever you go. Now that's one side of, of the coin, the capacity of the word of God to cure. There's another side, which is the capacity of the word of God to curse, because it does have that effect as well. Paul said on one occasion, we are a saver of life and death. To some people, we, are, we smell like death itself. We're a curse wherever we go, simply because we speak the word of God to others. We're a cure. There's a sweetness and a fragrance about what we have to say. The remaining three verses really have to do with with that truth that the word of God can curse others as well as, as cure them. Verse 23, then he, that is Elisha, went up from there to Bethel. That was quite a climb. Jericho is actually down below sea level. Bethel is about 3,000 feet above it. The distance up there is about the distance from Boise to the top of, of Schaefer Butte. So it's a pretty good climb. Elisha was retracing his steps with Elijah. They, they had come from the highlands, then Bethel, down to Jericho and across the Jordan. Now Elisha was going back, retracing those steps, reliving the memories of his days with Elisha. He goes from Jericho back up to Bethel. Bethel was one of the wickedest places on the face of the earth. It was the center of sin in Israel. That's where Jeroboam erected his golden bull. And that Baal worship, bull worship, had been corrupted even further by Jezebel's coming and 
And that was one of the most wicked places you could imagine. It's interesting that Elijah planted one of his schools for the prophets right there within a yard of hell, giving these young men an opportunity to minister in one of the most difficult places, one of the darkest places on the face of the earth. So Elisha makes his way up the Wadi Suwena. The trail makes its way up that deep, deep gorge up to the top of, of, the, of the mountains there that run up and down uh, uh, Palestine. And he comes to Bethel. And out of the gates come not a bunch of little tots, but a bunch of thugs. The word that's used for little children here is not the word for a small child. It's used of Solomon, for example, when he was 20 years of age. It's used of uh, David when he's described as a mighty warrior. These were not little children. These were the boys in the hood. These were a bunch of thugs, a bunch of tough guys, a bunch of rebels against God. The word that's used for scoffing here is not the normal word for scoffing. Uh, there are several words, uh, four or five words that are used that have the idea of expressing scorn. This is a word that means to deride, to put someone down. And the epithet, bald head, was not just, uh, you know, that's not just an unmannerly thing to say. That was the worst insult that you could hurl at someone. I don't know why. It's, I mean, but, but it's still true today in Semitic cultures. If you refer to someone as a bald head, it's, it's terribly insulting. It's one of those words which just has common meaning, but is has come to be an invective. We have words like that in English that are just, you know, in normal use, they don't have that meaning, but they can be used in such a way that they're pejorative, and, that, that, and that's, that's the term here, and it's terribly insulting. When they were saying, go up, go up, there are two possibilities. Even, either they were referring back to Elijah's translation, because uh, that same word is used there, Alyada, go up. could be saying, all right, get in your chariot and go up. Or they were just saying, keep on going. In other words, get out of here. So they, they called him a dirty name and, and gave him the gate. See, these aren't little children that are just giving the prophet a hard time, just teasing him. These are, these are young men and women whose hearts were hardened against the truth, who were defying God because they were defying God's prophet. They were saying, don't give us God's word. We don't want to hear it. And Elisha took it for a while. He wandered on up toward Bethel, and finally he turned around, not out of personal pique, but for the sake of the glory and the reputation of God. He turned around, and he cursed it in the name of the Lord. The Hebrew word for curse literally means to make sterile. Very interesting. When seen against the backdrop of uh, the uh, spring in Jericho and the use of that, that word there for the, for the fields. It's to render impotent or to make sterile. And two she-bears came out of the woods, and the NIV is right in translating that phrase, mauled 42 of them. They were not killed. They were merely cut up. It's a word that's used repeatedly through the Old Testament for gashing or cutting. The bears mauled them, but I don't believe they were killed. I, I think God was giving them another chance. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews, the author of Hebrews tells us that. But God's judgment is always first redemptive, and I really believe he was reaching out again to these men and women. I have no idea what their response was subsequent to this act, but they learned a very pointed and a very painful lesson that day that you cannot 
you cannot ridicule God and get away with it. The mills of God's justice grind slowly, but they grind exceeding fine. Now I want to leave you with one thought. Let your speech be seasoned with salt because that's what will make life sweet for those that respond to it. But there are going to be some who won't respond to it. Paul said in 2 Timothy, those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now, you may not find that promise in your promise box, but believe me, it's there. Like the guy says, it sells suits. I guarantee it. If you're going to live godly in Christ Jesus, if you're going to let your speech be sprinkled with salt, if you're going to impart truth to people, both within the body of Christ and outside, you will find that some people will not be softened and sweetened. They will get harder. They will hate you for it. And they will reject you. They will ridicule you. They'll call you worse than baldhead. Believe me, they'll call you idiot. They will make up dirty names for you. Jesus said they have hated me. They will hate you. So don't be surprised. Peter says, don't be surprised at the fiery trial that is to come to try you. It's all part of the process. It's not because the word is impotent. It's because the word does harden people's hearts. So I would leave this word with you. You know, you and I don't want to waste our time. I don't know how much time I have left. But whatever time I have left, I don't want to waste. Wherever I go, I want to leave behind the fragrance of Christ. To some people, that will smell terrible. They'll be offended by that. They'll hate me for that. But for others, it will smell so sweet. It will be just the thing that they're looking for. So the lesson for us regardless of whatever else we take out of this passage, is simply this. Wherever you are, whatever you do, let your speech be seasoned with salt. Let's pray. Lord, you tell us that speech, that salt in the salt shaker does no good whatever. It's got to be taken out of that container and applied where, where it's needed and I would pray that you would cut through our cowardice and our fear and, and, our, and our shame and our tendency to be embarrassed when people uh, turn away from us when we speak a word to them about your love for them. And, and just give us the kind of boldness that characterized your servant, Elisha. And may we uh, simply... Put them in your hands to deal with as you see fit and go on faithfully ministering your word. Make us men and women of one book. Make us people who invest ourselves in getting to know the truth so that our lives can be seasoned with salt. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.